You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. I don't think you can truly change for the better in a lasting, meaningful way unless it is driven by self-acceptance. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will find their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco, and it's so great to be here uh, bringing you another show, a story, which actually this week is going to be very interesting because it's a show full of the arts. My guest happens to be Um, an artist, and so is Sherry's guest that will be coming up at the end of the show. Um, So in just a few minutes, I'm going to be talking to Jane Golden. Jane is the executive director and founder of Mural Arts Philadelphia. And later in the show, you'll hear from Sherry, our Lifestyle Watch contributor, and she's going to be with Anea Lockwood. Anea is a composer and an artist from New Zealand who's currently living in Montana. So that's going to be a great segment as well. Um, As always, for information on the show to see who's coming up um, and learn all about uh, the the lineup and anything we have going on outside of the show, feel free to visit womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. So now I'm very excited and honored to welcome Jane Golden. Jane, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm so happy to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. And I know that you're traveling. You're in Oregon. So um, yeah, what's it like there today? It is absolutely beautiful. It's 60 degrees, brilliant blue sky, no humidity. Very (laughs) nice. nice break from Philly. It is. It is. And we still, I think we're in another heat wave, but it's okay. It's summertime. It's my favorite time. Yeah. Um, You know, I... I was reading your background, and one of the things that struck me was the fact that you grew up in Margate, New Jersey, which to me, when I meet people who grew up at what I call the seashore, because it's a place we always vacationed, I'm so fascinated to know what that was like to be near a beach and in a in a town that feels more like vacation than home. It was lovely. It was really um, just such a a dream to grow up there. You know, this is before Margate is what it is today. Uh, It's changed a lot. It's become busier. Um, Then it was, you know, there were the beautiful beach homes and there were still sand dunes in Longport. Uh, Every Saturday we would ride our bikes down to Longport. Uh, We'd stop at a little deli for lunch. You know, I walked on the beach almost year round. It was something uh, I have to say very special. Uh, We were like a full beach family. We sailed, we surfed, we did like everything. Our house was 50 feet from the beach, which was great. Um, And I think that I 
grew up with this appreciation for nature because of just looking out my window and seeing the ocean. Yeah. Tell me about the winters, because when I, you know, get down there in the wintertime, it's very quiet. So as a kid, how did you spend your time then? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think growing up then was different and you went outside and you played and our playground was the beach. And so I love the winter beach. I actually did. And I liked it when the Philadelphians went away. We were like, phew, <laughs> goodbye to them. Which is so funny that I live in Philly now because I was like, oh, those Philadelphians. Um, <laughs> but it was, a, you know, it sort of a challenged our imagination uh, to really um, make things up and enjoy ourselves uh, and but I also in the summers, um, I either went to camp by the sea, the day camp, or I went. Uh, my parents belonged to the Traymore Hotel Pool Club, and so we had this giant hotel at our disposal. So I started, I founded a spy club, and we had yes, this. I amazing- want to hear about <laughs> what exactly. is the spy club. <laughs> When, when I started Mural Arts, my brother said, you've started the spy club again, <laughs> which I thought was so funny. But and then we were always on the boardwalk. And I remember the Miss Americas and the Democratic Convention. And I always had my little autograph book. And I was always like taking pictures, getting autographs. So it was, it yeah. was fun. It sounds idyllic. And, and I know that your mom was an artist herself. She was a watercolorist. Did she spend time doing uh, pieces of the surroundings and the ocean and the dunes or what what was her specialty she did she would was always going to ocean city she she loved going to cape may to paint she was really a, be- a wonderful watercolor painter she was also a businesswoman and uh, she eventually went into business with my father but she absolutely she loved to paint and she painted almost till a, a few years before she passed away okay and and how about the um your school where, where did you go to high school I went to Atlantic City High School. I went to Eugene Tai School for grade school and then Atlantic City High School, which was just an overwhelming experience because I'd gone to this little grade school and suddenly I'm in a school with like 3000 people. And it was interesting. It was a very diverse high school. It was completely a different experience. And I remember the first few weeks being just thrown off by the size and it was so Mm. cramped and, and people were different than myself. And I remember saying to my father, I don't want to go here. And he said, this is the world and you have to deal with it. You know, I, and I'm always grateful for his advice to me because I think it helped make me who I am today. That he encouraged me not just to run, but to to hang in there. Yeah. Um, Would you consider yourself an introvert when you were younger? Yes. Sometimes there's that that perception of artists that, that... they prefer to be alone and, you know, be creating. Yeah, I always think of myself as an introvert extrovert. I'm extroverted at work, but I really like being like smaller groups, being by myself. So I have that introverted side. And when I was young, because I started painting when I was about 10, I, I think there was a side of me that didn't mind being by myself or having mm-hmm. a smaller group of friends. And so high school, it seemed overwhelming and I had to make my way. So I made my way by getting involved. I you know, joined lots of clubs and I was part of the honor society and I worked in the office and I took extra curricular activities. I, I was a busy bee for sure. But yeah. I definitely, there was a part of me that liked walking on the beach by myself or with a few friends every day. Yeah. So tell me, I know that at some point you thought about law school. And, um, you know, I, I love that your parents, they saw the artistic side of you and they, they really encouraged that. They thought, you know what, I don't know that that's the right path for you. Well, you know, when I was at Mount Holyoke College, where I was for two years, I took some city planning classes and I absolutely love them and government classes. And so I was intrigued by cities early on, but then I had um, a residency in my, during my sophomore year at Mount Holyoke and I was working for a very well-known abstract painter. I mean, I was an intern and the interns really just like made his canvases and cleaned the studio. It wasn't anything like glamorous, but there was a man there, um, Dr. Albert Elson, who ran the art history department at Stanford. And he said to me, you should think about, I was telling him I was going to transfer to Dartmouth or Princeton. And he said, no, you should try for Stanford. Just try. And I said, I'll never get in. He goes, try. They're looking for serious art students. So I applied. I got in. At Stanford, I took art classes, but also political science. So there was always that idea in this part of my brain that I thought, oh, I might go to law school, but I'm an artist and I love art. My painting teachers were like, give up on law. Don't do it. Go, you know, when you leave school, get a job that's mundane and just paint, you know, do something that nurtures your creative side. And yeah. that's ultimately what I did. 
Yeah. And actually you're using both, right? So I, I mean, know. You're, yeah, right. you're an activist and you're involved yes. in community and politics and what's going on. And that's so interesting that that was where your interests lied. And here you are still today doing that kind of that's work. Right. In fact, the first mural that I ever did, I realized, oh, this is such an interesting mix of all my interests, cities. And I mean, how cities work and education and art making and public space. It was it was such an epiphany to say, oh, my goodness, I think I found my calling. Yeah, yeah I, I was watching an interview you did recently and you said, you know, it might sound silly, but I wake up excited every day. I know every day. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? <laughs> That's the ultimate, right? Um, tell me about Judy Baca. Judy Baca, you met um, while uh, you know you were spending time in LA, and apparently she was quite an influence on you. Tell me about her. Well, she's an extraordinary person and a brilliant artist, and she's having a big show at the Getty right now. She's really getting her due, but she was uh, always very formidable in the mural movement. And so when I moved down to L.A., I read about this organization that gave out grants to muralists, and I read about her, and I was like, I would love to do a commission for the L.A. mural program. So I applied. I was totally past the deadline. I, I think I just... I, I called them every day for months till I finally got a call where people told me I had this grant. And I was like, but they said, but we hope we never hear from you again because I called them so endlessly. And the grant was like $300 <laughs> to do this giant wall. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> I've never really done a mural. So um, she was very kind, um, but also tough. And she, you know, really had a high standard. You know, if you were going to do a project for Spark, her organization, you had to really be committed to community. And I just saw her take on the power structure and fight for her budget and fight for her staff and fight for artists. And I felt like mm -hmm. she's amazing. So she was always like a mentor to me. And I feel like what a great mentor to have because she was so committed and she did her work with great intentionality. There was nothing not rigorous about her practice. And so I, you know, sort of like a sponge, I soaked all of it up. And then I went on to do mural after mural after mural. And I worked with young people on probation and I was always keeping an eye on what's Judy doing? What's Judy doing? And what brought me to a halt was that I became really sick. I have lupus and it was just devastating because I was told mm -hmm. I wouldn't live long. So I ended up coming back to be with my family in Margate and coming up to Hahnemann Hospital for treatments. And that's eventually what led me to apply to work for the Anti-Graffiti Network and Wilson Good. So, okay, that's great. You just encapsulated that perfectly for me. So tell me, how did Wilson, Mayor Wilson Good find you? How, what was the connection? How did that come to be? Well, good question. So I ended up, you know, I read this article. I was reading a number of articles that Philadelphia had their first black mayor. It was hugely exciting. He was going to combat graffiti. And he said he was going to do it by working with young people who were writing on walls. And he said it occurred to him that a lot of the kids loved art. And so he was going to start a little art component. And I thought to myself, that could be my job. Like, how crazy is that? Like, I never really had spent much time in Philly. I had no, no real connection. So I wrote him a letter and I just said, I'd be honored to work in your administration, attached as my resume, uh, please call me. <laughs> so I, I mailed the letter. This makes me a thousand years old because it's before email. Oh, he know, he and, does not know Jane Golden at all at this point. Not okay. a clue. Okay. And several weeks later, I had gone to the movies. I come back. My father is on the front porch and he's super excited. He goes, you're not going to believe who called tonight. And I was like, who? He said, this man named Oliver Franklin, he's the deputy city representative for arts and culture. He works for Mayor Good, and he wants to talk to you. And I was like, what? Wow. So wow. He, said, call, he said, call him tomorrow. So I think I woke up at six in the morning, Sue, and started calling the city of Philadelphia. Hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> They're not there yet, but you're calling. <laughs> but Oliver said, this is so interesting. He said, well, we have a mutual friend. And I said, who? He said, Judy Baca. And he said, um, oh, wow. you know, I used to, he said he used to be a filmmaker. He, he lived in LA and he so admired Judy and they had become friends. He said, so when I got your resume, I called her and said, should I hire Jane Golden? And oh, he she said, I'll go. tell you two things about Jane Golden. She will drive you crazy because she's one of the most tenacious people I've ever met and you <laughs> should absolutely hire her. So I came up for an interview uh, with Oliver, who sent me to Tim Spencer, who ran this anti-graffiti network. And literally, so in like five minutes, Tim is like, looks at my resume. He goes, okay, okay. So you're hired. 
You wow. can get $12,500 a year. You won't have a desk because we don't have room for you. Uh, we're not sure about your title. You'll be like a field representative. So I was like, okay. And he said, and your job is to rechannel the negative energy of graffiti writers to something positive. And that was like it. And suddenly wow. it was like diving in a cold pool of water where someone goes, swim, swim. And it was like suddenly <laughs> I, had a I didn't have much, but I was determined to do it. What year was that? 1984. Um, listen, we're going to go into our first break. And when we come back, I want to talk about, you know, the work that you're doing, what's happening today, and um, a little bit more about, you know, that component of, of these kids looking for a place to call home. Um, stay with us. If you're listening on 1210, you'll hear our watch team, and we'll be back with Jane Golden, Executive Director and Founder of Mural Arts Philadelphia. Now the women to watch. Finance Watch. Finance Watch. At Penn Community Bank, we're committed to giving you the tools and resources you need to succeed financially. Building wealth may seem like a daunting or distant goal, but just like most goals in personal finance, the earlier you start, the better. There's no right answer for everyone when it comes to what exactly to invest in. What securities you buy and how much you buy solely depends on your comfort level of how much risk you're willing to take. If the stock market is unfamiliar territory, but you're ready to take the leap, mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, known as ETFs, are an excellent stepping stone into the world of investing. A mutual fund allows you to allocate your funds based on your goals by investing a certain amount of savings each month. By setting up auto-debit from your savings to your mutual fund every month, you're bound to stay committed to your investment strategy. When you invest in an ETF, you're investing in a mix of stocks. Some may decrease in value while others increase, but the goal is ultimately to be steadily building an overall return. Just like a mutual fund, the risk is spread out across multiple companies. Investing is an excellent way to prepare for your future, whether it's buying a home, saving for your child's education, or setting yourself up for a worry-free retirement. Visit PennCommunityBank.com to learn more. Penn Community Bank, here we are and here we grow. Women to Watch Sports Watch. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Jen Welker, and you are listening to Sports Watch. Too many times people look at the highlight reel of your life and they don't see what happened in the dark. If you're going to make it to the bright life, you're going to have to take some L's. And as a matter of fact, doesn't, doesn't life start with L? So that means you have to get through it to get to it. As, as a person who played sports, like I have won championships. But the Super Bowl that I will never forget was the first one I ever played in, and we took the L. And you know what? I learned a whole lot about it. I learned I never wanted another team to catch me off guard. I knew I wanted to be the most prepared athlete that I could be, and I hadn't felt that way going into that game. And you know, I wonder sometimes if we'd have won that first Super Bowl, if I would have had the passion and perseverance to go on to win four or to play long enough to win two gold medals. So let's just put it really simply. Life, it starts with L. You've got to get through them to get to it, right? Follow me and all my adventures, or you could say misadventures, on Welter47 on Instagram or at jwelter47 on Twitter. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Hi, and welcome back to the show. I'm Sue Rocco, and I'm having a wonderful conversation this week with Jane Golden. Jane is the executive director and founder of Mural Arts Philadelphia. Um, Jane, I have to ask how, you know, COVID has affected your work over the past two years, and how did you have to pivot to make sure that things were still moving ahead? Great question. You know, I'm so proud of everybody at Mural Arts because uh, we were able to put art into action. You know, first, of course, it was daunting and what are we going to do? And we pivoted pretty quickly. So our programming went virtual and we were doing really interesting things. You know, we had very clever art programs that were then open up to the general public everywhere in the world. People started tuning in and our restorative justice program, they were doing their work on their phones. And then we, uh, we had our Porchlight program where we were making all kinds of kits. But then we partnered with the Department of Public Health to create accurate, up-to-date, reliable public health messages on these things we called space pads. They were decals that could be on the ground that were 
then translated into six languages and they would help keep people six feet apart. But we were commissioning artists all over the city to design them. So we were putting money into artists' pockets. We were creating this, these decals that were so much more creative than the black lines that stores had in the beginning. And mm-hmm. as of, I think six months ago, we were up to 7,000 space pads. That term was just made up by us then, and people were ordering space pads. Can I have a hundred space pads? We're like, sure. Cause we were thinking we want to create space between people and lily pads that people could like sort of hop on that were totally beautiful. And then we started doing posters and we paste and murals. And we were part of the, the um, Vax Up campaign. And then we put mural uh, masks on murals around the city. I mean, I'm telling you, Sue, we flew into action every possible way we can. And then after the social uprisings, when George Floyd was murdered, we started a fellowship for black and brown artists. So in some way, it was we were able to make lemonade out of lemons. Wow. Tell me, is there always um, a, a mural being commissioned, a mural always being done? Like right now, is there a brand new mural about to be revealed in, in the city? Yes, we do. We have about 30 going on. Wow, all the time. Wow. There are about a hundred projects that are completed every year. And what's I think deceptive that people don't know is that we have a very healthy programmatic division where literally we have probably 7,000 constituents in art education, behavioral health, criminal justice, mural making. And then we do big, complicated public art projects. We have a restoration division, tours. And as of two years ago, a mural arts institute where we're working with cities around the country and around the world. Yeah, tell me about, so I I did understand that it's not just in Philadelphia, it's international. Um, What are you most excited about in bringing what you've created to all urban cities? Well, what's really interesting, we're very loyal to Philly. We love Philly and our work is there and we feel like part of the fabric of our city. But it is so interesting to be exporting what we in Philly are doing like really well and in such an enthusiastic fashion. Um, But we're also learning from other cities. So it's like a knowledge exchange. So right now we're in about 15 cities across the U.S. and several cities worldwide. We just started uh, project number two in Athens. We're in London. We've worked in Mexico City, uh, Montreal. So I, I will say that that's thrilling to see what other people are doing because we're always thinking about the field of art and social practice. How can art be useful? What can art mean to cities? How can we be aspirational and pragmatic at the same time? How do we make sure that we never, never lose sight of the role of creativity and innovation in order to crack the code with problems that sometimes seem the most tractable and perplexing to cities, not just Philly, but cities everywhere? You know, I so believe, Jane, that our our surroundings and and you know, what is around us and what, where we are totally affects our psyche. Right. And so if we're surrounded by beauty and creativity and um, it's, it's inspiring, it's motivational. Can you talk about the, the effect that it has had on the people of Philadelphia? Because right now things are not always the way we would hope they would be. I mean, gun violence, you're right there in Philadelphia in the heart of the community do you have hopes for this kind of um, program to have an effect there for young people that are so lost that they're going in the wrong direction? How can this type of program change their way of thinking? Well, I want to first hold anti-graffiti up as a model because we did that work for 10 years. We probably served 25,000 kids. I saw young person after young person get out of that cycle of crime and violence and onto another path. It was a reroute, but we shouldn't mislead ourselves. It wasn't a four week program. We had to really invest in young people, but it paid off handsomely, right? How much does it cost to keep someone in prison? $54,000 a year. What were we investing? 10,000 at the most. It's just a wise investment, but you have to do it with rigor, intention, and love. And so what we see, you know, let's take one program, for example, our guild program, that's our reentry program for young people, 18 to 24, who've been impacted by the justice system. They're coming out of jail, prison, or they're on probation. They have an, an ankle bracelet. And suddenly what we find is that so many kids 
have creativity and gifts and strengths and talent that have historically and sadly gone unrecognized. Look, life just isn't fair. Some people have opportunities and some don't. So suddenly this introduction to make a mark on the city in big, bold, beautiful, inspiring ways, that matters. When they, when kids say to me, when their family members, when their friends ask them, you know, where are you working at Mural Arts? And that people say, Oh, did you do the Dr. J mural? Like people, they say everyone's face lights up when they say mural arts, because suddenly they're connected to the 4,200 murals around the city that they see. And you're right. If you impact the environment, you impact people's lives. So we're impacting individual lives. And at the same time, it's like a mirror image. We're impacting the built environment of the city, but young people are part of that change. So they feel they're part of something important, something that's making a tangible, concrete difference. They're getting paid. We have all kinds of trainings. We have a certificate program. So they're learning everything from, you know, how you build scaffolding to getting lifts certified to leadership skills, to technology, all of that. So they work with us and then we have a jobs developer on staff and a social worker. So we're looking at it holistically. And then we try to move them onto a positive path. Now, I will say we have an. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand, and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Say goodbye your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 8% recidivism rate. What does that mean? It means that young people are not getting in trouble for the most part again. So what does that say? It says that there are a lot of young people who are yearning, they're looking for something. And if we can do a reroute, remember when Wilson Good put $6 million city dollars on the table and most of it went to employ young people. So I'm all about sort of a, like a, a new deal project that would take our young people, put them to work and try on, on transformational change in our cities. And I'll never, I'm always hopeful for our city. I love our city. And I see this when I see young people or I'm working, even when we work at the prison, the, the, the men out there, some of them are lifers. We're like, I can't give up on people. They've already been judged by a court of law. We don't need to do that. But what we can do is provide them with opportunities. So when they're talking to their kids, their nephews, their nieces, their message is, this might be my life that I'm behind bars. It does not have to be yours. It is liberating. And so I'm like, every we work in Kensington. We work with people struggling with deep trauma. And over and over again, we see the healing um, results of art. But, but even more than that, we see people subtle, it's subtle, do a shift in how their lives are unfolding. So here's what I want to ask you is, are there, are you working with the grownups, you know, the, the adults and the grownups that are failing the children, perhaps, you know, we have a lot of programs and we're doing a lot of things for the young people that have experienced trauma and have not gotten um, you know, the support and the love that they should have. So what kinds of things are available to, to their parents who perhaps had the same upbringing and they're failing their own children? Well, one thing we have, we have been working on this with this one program that was started inside the prison, the state prison called Fathers and Children Together, where we work with the dads and help build bonds with the children. And we do that around art making activities along with having a social worker there inside the visiting room. We've extended the age of one of our guild programs. So we're working with people up to their early thirties because of that, because so many of them are parents. And so what does that mean? And how do we impact them so that they can feel better about their own lives and therefore provide something more substantive to their children? Um, in our art education program, we're often bring the parents in 
with mural tours, with events. We have exhibitions. We're always trying to reach out and encourage the family to come and be part of what we're doing. And then when we're working in communities all over the city of Philadelphia, we have paint days, volunteer opportunities, and we also offer tons of jobs in the arts. And so people get involved with us every which way possible. Mural arts, it's like we're, we have a box and we're turning it around all the time. What angle, what have we left out? What are we not thinking of that we should be? Yeah, I think that's so smart, Jane, because I think ultimately, you know, that that kind of fractured family unit, that that's where it begins. And, you know, we can be there to pick up the pieces, but I'm always wanting to go to the very root, the origin of something. How can we change that from happening in the future? And it it made me think about um, we talk a lot on the show about STEM initiatives for young girls. And perhaps we're neglecting the boys and maybe there should be, um, you know, arts programs just for boys. Do you think, you know, is that something we should look at? Oh, I totally do. I mean, look at the graffiti raiders I worked with. I mean, most of them were boys. I mean, there were very few women, young women graffiti writers, and they just took to art. Like just like, it was just incredible. I mean, it was like they were hungry. They, they were like, had a thirst for it. It was unbelievable. And in our classes between the girls and the boys, it's just equal interest. So I think that's really important. I also think we should think about STEAM and not just STEM, how the arts can be integrated into yes. how we're teaching, because we have a program during the school day that merges art, math, and science for a lot of young people. And I would say I was sort of like this too. I was intimidated by math and science and art can bring them in and feel safer. And we have one project. I love this project. It's called the micro to the macro. And if you walk around the McMichael school in Mantua, you learn all about particles. You learn about the solar system. We actually had kids watching documentaries about physics. It was unbelievable. And a school where like there was like minimal sort of science going on. And I mean, as kids responding to science, but so it was like, what? This is fantastic. And so we then worked at South Philly High and did a big project on climate change. And if you go look at the outside of the school, it's just, it's beautiful. So the art represents the learning that's going on. And we have teaching artists who they themselves were intimidated by math and science. And so they're great. Sort of, they can convey this message. Don't be intimidated. There are ways that you can, don't ever stop learning. And through creativity, you can come in the door to learn so much. Um, We just have a few minutes left. If there's a woman watching and listening to you, you really um, had a dream and followed it and you're living it. And I think there's there's women that are kind of um, stuck with that lack of belief in themselves, and they do have um, an idea that that they want to bring forward because it will be impactful. What could you say for words of encouragement to them? Well, I would say I never could have believed where I was. I, I never would have imagined this for myself. I think I would have if you had talked to me back then, you know, sort of after LA, I I would have said, I'm eventually going to law school. In fact, and when anti-graffiti closed down, I did apply and got into law school. My my brother, who's a lawyer, talked me out of it and encouraged me to talk to um, Governor Randell, uh, who, of course, was mayor then. And thanks to Ed Randell, he agreed to create the mural arts program, and we were transferred to, to the Department of Recreation. That was our start. So I really never let go of the dream I developed when I was sorry, when I was standing on the corner at Ocean Park and Main Street in Santa Monica doing my first mural and thinking that murals make art accessible to everyone and isn't this fantastic. And I held on to it and I had to hear no. And I encountered lots of obstacles, including having lupus, including thinking my world was going to just shut down. And I that's very difficult. Yes, that's very challenging. Just sort of understand that the only way you're going to get there is it's you, right? And so you have to drive that and understand that um, that it's you can really make it happen. You know, it's it's what I said before that it's a journey of faith, and I feel that it's important to be tenacious, to not give up, to understand it might take a number of times, but you should never let it die if it's something that you really believe in. That's what I, I say. Just stay on the path. Because I think that my story, how, how mural arts unfolded, if you had met me even when mural arts started and you would have said to me in 2000, when our budget was $100,000, Jane, in 2020, $15 million organization that's doing work worldwide, I would have said, no way, I'll probably be, in, I'll probably be a lawyer. That's what I would have said to you. 
So that's what I'm saying. So drive, you know, you just, you just, you just stay on that path. And when I said about not, not, you know, like when there's an obstacle, just use all your creativity and will to try to figure out how to get around it. We always say that art ignites change and we see that change all the time. And that's the change I want to encourage all your listeners to believe in, in themselves. I love that. What a wonderful way to end the show, Jane. Um, I'm so grateful for your taking time, especially since you're traveling to be with us. And I'll be sure to share the information um, about mural arts and hopefully people will be reaching out to help. Thank you. This has been so delightful to talk to you. Thanks, Jane. Stay with us. And when we come back, we'll hear from Sherry Morrison, who's going to be speaking with Anaya Lockwood. She's a composer and an artist from New Zealand. We'll be right back. Now, the women to watch. Marketing Watch. Finding your brand's purpose. Hi there, my name is Diana Barnes, or DB as most people call me, and I'm the Chief Brand Officer and Creative Director at Munchkin, the world's most loved baby lifestyle brand for over 30 years. We know that companies who give back to causes that are important to their consumers tend to grow faster, have increased brand loyalty, and attract top-tier talent. But what if your company's corporate giving is fragmented or non-existent? The former was the case when I joined Munchkin seven years ago. The company made donations to organizations, but there wasn't a strategic approach to its giving efforts. Sometimes a company's choice for philanthropic support, commonly referred to as CSR or corporate social responsibility, is evident. A shoe company donates sneakers to children in need, for example. At Munchkin, we leaned into less obvious choices. Just like the parents that use our products, we're concerned now more than ever about the world we're leaving to our children. Ensuring that at-risk and endangered animals survive for future generations is a primary pillar of our CSR. Our product line, Wild Love, infuses our devotion to animal welfare with our most successful products, our 360 Miracle Cups. The line is solely focused on educating families about these at-risk species and supports our biannual donations to the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Our philanthropic efforts also support Trees for the Future and the building of the world's first whale and dolphin safe haven through the Whale Sanctuary Project. We make these contributions because it's important to our founder, our employees, and our consumers. When I tell people where I work, they either recognize our brand from our most popular product, the No Spill 360 Cup, or they know us as the baby brand that cares about animals. Either is a win-win in my book. When it comes to defining CSR efforts for your company, don't be afraid to look beyond the obvious places or ways to give. Commit to a cause and to ongoing long-term donations. Find reputable organizations to give to by searching on GuideStar or Charity Navigator. Get your employees involved with volunteer opportunities and share milestones and accomplishments with your consumers. After all, they're the ones that make the giving possible. To learn more about all of Munchkin CSR work, please visit us at munchkin.com. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. Hi, welcome to the Lifestyle of Women to Watch. I'm Sherry Morrison. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with soundscape artist Anaya Lockwood. Welcome to the show, Anaya. Thank you, Sherry. I'm thrilled to be on the show, and it's wonderful to be talking with you. <laughs> We've had a day full of artists. This is so much fun. Anaya is not only a, land, a soundscape artist, but also a composer of instrumental and vocal pieces. She was born and raised in New Zealand. We've had a delightful conversation, and I am enjoying learning about soundscape artistry. Anaya's vibrant energy and curiosity, fascination for the effects of sound in our environment and through our bodies has been inspiring. Anaya's most recent exhibit is an installation um, currently at the Academy of Natural Sciences. She worked on it with Liz Phillips, also a sound interactive and installation artist. The exhibit just opened in the Dietrich Gallery. This year's uh, exhibits or theme at the Academy is water, and they've been absolutely fabulous. So, Anaya, let's get to it. Uh, Please tell us a little bit about your education and growing up in New Zealand. Oh, for, for it's no wonder I ended up as a soundscape artist. I was I was the child of uh, a, my mother, a musician uh, who studied choreography, had a had a great time making live 
shows with young women um, in England. She was English and over in New Zealand. My father, a lawyer, but really more of a mountaineer than a lawyer, I think. And we spent a lot of time in the Alps uh, near Christchurch, where I was born. Uh, and my parents were fascinated by the landscape and, and the soundscape, listening for birds, listening to changes in the in the waterscape of local rivers and learning how powerful they are. I mean, it was a great education for what I've become. It sounds amazing. And I've, I've never been, but I've heard New Zealand is absolutely fabulous. Um, and it sounds as though your mother and your music teacher and the environment have been big influences on the path that you've taken. Can you describe the different types of work that you do and, and why this is important for us to understand? Working with sound, I concluded not very long ago, I work with sound because it's my way of exploring the world. What happens in the world, how species interact, how phenomena interact, um, and both human interaction and non-human interaction. So I love to work with musicians. Uh, three years ago, I made a, a co-composed, which was a, is a very nice experience, co-composed with Jan Wire, two percussionists, two musicians, uh, a work called Into the Vanishing Point. Uh, not through the van not <laughs> through the vanishing point, so to speak, but right in it, into it, um, which reflected our concerns about vanishing insect populations, decimation of insect populations around the world, which is dire and has a huge ripple effect, of course, throughout entire ecologies. So, but that was purely instrumental. Um, and I learned a great deal from it. We had a wonderful time working together. Uh, they're still performing it. And then, as you mentioned, uh, this year I've been collaborating with Liz Phillips. Uh, we're both water obsessives. And we've been recording underwater around New York area for two or three years before this opportunity to collaborate on a, on a big project uh, came up. And we've been, we've been eavesdropping on the school kill. Uh, <laughs> at the surface and underwater and together created uh, the river feeds back up in the Dietrich Gallery with the Academy of Natural Sciences in Drexel, who've been wonderful to collaborate with. Yeah, I've done a little work with them and they really are a wonderful group. Yeah. Um, and the, the school is amazing what they, yes. they do. Um, so they're fortunate, that the Academy is fortunate that Drexel has um, sponsored them like they do and, and keep things moving and, and progressing. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful building that's been there forever, but um, it's slowly, slowly evolving and with programs like this, it's it's fantastic. When I listen to your work, I it's mesmerizing, it's transcendental. Uh, I understand how some of these different sounds and vibrations can affect all creatures in so many different ways. They're soothing, warning, motivational, so many different influences. Do you think that some of our culture has evolved through the sounds of nature? I've always been certain of it. I mean, many, many, I would say most of us musicians believe that uh, instruments arose from communication uh, with birds and animals and, and various environments. Um, it seems like an obvious evolution, so to speak, at least for humans. Um, I think of tribal, uh, you know, I go back to when I think about, you know, the sounds that uh, they were making and chanting um, and they, they sound a lot like nature. And I think that's how we started communicating. So I, it's very, very interesting. I never thought about it until I spoke with you and started seeing some of your exhibits. Um, you, you, you mentioned one of your favorite projects in Katona, New York at the Caramore Center for the Arts. It's not too far from Manhattan, a little bit north. Can you tell us a little bit about the exhibit and its importance to you? That's an exhibit titled Wild Energy. And it's a collaboration also with Bob Balecki, who's a wonderful sound engineer and sound designer. Worked for many years with Laurie Anderson. He's great to work with. You walk into a, a wooded area, where there are two hammocks and several chairs, but the hammocks are especially enticing. You settle yourself in a hammock 
And then you start hearing sounds coming from, it seems, from the rocks around you, from the tree canopy. They're sounds which you would normally never be able to hear. The sounds of uh, non-human phenomena, geophysical, atmospheric, from mammals, from, from bats, for example. But all of them are outside our hearing range normally. But uh, our feeling was that the vibrations from earthquakes, volcanoes, uh, the aurora borealises, electromagnetic uh, emanations, uh, are passing through our bodies, passing through our environment constantly. They're a sort of interactive web with us, forming of which, yeah, of which, as I always say, we're, we're an integral part. And so wild energy brings those sounds, the very low ones from Mount Kilauea's magma movement, um, for example, up into up to the surface of your hearing range and from bats and moths and other phenomena down <laughs> into your hearing range and and suddenly you're aware of their presence in your soundscape always there but impossible to to really be consciously aware of until you start listening to them and they're wonderful sounds given to us by scientists from uh, research institutions all around the world who were very, very generous in sending us their sounds already shifted into the hearing range, which was very helpful. Um, and it's still running there. So you lie back in a hammock and you can listen to Mount Kilauea, you listen to the sun, actually. There are sounds, very, very low frequencies, oscillation sounds emanating from the sun, which have been brought up so that we can transpose up so we can hear them. And all of a sudden, there's this energetic world all around you, swirling around you. It's it's a nice experience, I think. Um, Anaya, uh, unfortunately, the, our time has flown by. Uh, we could all, we have all agreed as the screen passes by here that we could listen to you talk all day long. Um, so thank you so much for joining us and sharing your stories. Um, you. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sherry. It's been a great pleasure. And may I make one suggestion? Sure. With you going outside listening. I do that at night and I'm standing in my yard listening, barefoot, listening with the sense that everything around me is also listening. So, I mean, from the worms underfoot to the cicadas in the trees, to the trees themselves. So I'm listening with rather than listening to. And it gives me such a feeling of deep integration with the entire environment. It reminds me that I'm deeply a part of that environment, as we all are. So, uh -huh. good listening. I, I love that. Thank you very much for that advice. Good advice. To learn more about Anaya and where you can see her work, go to www.anayalockwood. That's A-N-N-E-A. L-O-C-K-W-O-O-D dot com and don't forget to check out the River Feeds back at the Academy of Natural Sciences. Please join me next week when we meet the cosmetic artist and makeup guru Becky Bo. Sue will be right back after a short break to close out the show. Keep living your dreams, ladies. Now the Women to Watch Military Watch. Hi. I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. August 7th is National Purple Heart Day, and I'd like to talk about the medal that no service member seeks to receive, but rather is willing to give their all to the nation. The Purple Heart is presented to service members who've been wounded or killed on the battlefield. To recognize the sacrifice that the medal signifies, here are five things that you may not know about this award. The Purple Heart is the oldest military award currently presented to members of the U.S. Armed Forces. The Purple Heart, then known as the Badge of Military Merit, was established by George Washington in 1782. And speaking of U.S. presidents, John F. Kennedy is the only one to receive the Purple Heart. The Purple Heart is a medal by the people of the people. In early military history, medals were typically given only to officers. But from its beginning, the Purple Heart was given to 
all soldiers of all ranks. The Purple Heart can be received multiple times by a single person. In fact, based on the number of deployments we've had in the last 20 years, a number of U.S. service members have received the award 10 times. What makes the medal unique is that it doesn't represent an achievement. It acknowledges sacrifice. I received a Purple Heart after sustaining wounds in Iraq from an improvised explosive device that tore through the vehicle I was in. And this weekend, I will remember my teammates who also suffered injuries on that day. The Military Order of the Purple Heart is a congressional chartered veteran service organization that supports Purple Heart recipients and their families through various programs. To learn more about how you can recognize and help these heroes, go to purpleheart.org. Welcome back to the show. I'm thinking so much about what um, Anea Lockwood said. I hope you saw that segment with Sherry. She's just such a magical, calm, beautiful lady. Um, Thanks so much for being with me. I hope you'll tune in next week. I'll be joined by Melinda Thomas, COO of uh, and co-founder of Octave Bioscience. Big thank you to Tone, our producer, and Sherry for her Lifestyle Watch segment and all of our sponsors and watch team members. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.